the plane snaps. And when it snaps, if you're not prepared for it, your head literally bangs off the side of the canopy. Um, you know, and then you pull really hard. And, and when you pull hard, it's not like a roller coaster where it just kind of gently rolls up into a loop. You're like, you pull a stick in your back and up you go. And it is a violent thing. When you're done with a one hour dogfight, you, you're sweaty. You feel like you played in an NFL football game. Your body's sore. Your neck's sore. I used to get bruises on, uh, you know, my triceps from kind of banging around in the cockpit. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Here's What We Know. And I'm all excited about it because I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm up in my game. I'm tired of talking to country singers and songwriters and, and everybody else. I decided to, uh, you know, I had a little danger in my life. So that's why I've got Francesco. What is it? Francesco Chirici? Yeah, that's good. Is that's that pretty close? Is it close? That's great. <laughs> all right. But, but yeah. a nice Italian name like that. And what does it get changed to in the Navy? Paco. <laughs> Actually, I've been called Paco my entire life. I get, we, we had neighbors who spoke Spanish when I was born, and that I got tagged with that as a baby. So here I am. How in the world did that become your call sign? <sighs> That's a great question. I, I'm one of the very few people in the Navy who never actually got a call sign. I just used my nickname the whole time. So I, they tried. They tried. I even crashed an airplane. They couldn't come up with a call sign. So. I mean, I, I mean, it. nobody was, well, you're too damn tall and too good looking to anybody call flubber butt. Cause I thought that would work. <laughs> they tried. They tried. <laughs> call sign flubber butt. Hey, how are you flubber? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have led such an interesting journey and especially with the movie Top Guns out now. And, and I got your book, The Lions of the Sky and, and okay. Honestly, you're one of those people that piss me off. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> because you do everything. I mean, okay, I'm a fighter pilot. I get done with that. I'm a trainer. I get done with that. I fly 737s. And oh, by the way, I also dogfight for fun. And yeah. while you're at it, I write a book and I'll be damned. I was expecting it. I, I'm okay. I'm going I'm to share a story with you one time. I, uh, I had this guy appearing at a record store with me, right? And we were there for four hours, two hours, four people showed up. Matter of fact, the record rep didn't come back and get him. I had to take him to the club. He got up on stage and started playing his guitar. And after an hour, it's all he did was play his guitar. And he walked off stage. Everybody's going crazy. And he walked out to me and he goes, and I looked at him and I said, I, you were amazing. And he goes, goes, thanks. I'm like, no, 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 Keith Urban. I thought you were going to (laughs) suck. I thought you were going to suck so hard. Right. So it's the same thing when it comes to this book. I thought this book was I was going to have to be nice about it and go, oh, what a cute book you got there, Paco. That's cute. You write amazingly well. (laughs) Thank you. No, I mean, I mean, you created this book and it's a work of fiction. It's called Lines of the Sky, Lines of the Sky. And you create these characters and I... I'm an old English lit major, right? And I okay. love books and I read books all the dang time. And most new authors can't do dialogue. Dialogue yeah. sucks. I mean, it just doesn't. You nail dialogue. 
Yeah. I grew up in a world, naval aviation, where dialogue was very important. Our banter was kind of what we lived by, you know. But it's so. one thing to get that intake and to be able to, to give it out, right? Yeah. I mean, that takes a special skill set. I will say it took me five years to write this book. So it's not like I banged it out in six months or something. It took a long time to get it all right. How many rewrites? A hundred. I don't know. A lot. <laughs> Where do you find that kind of dedication? Because most people, uh, listen, uh, most of us have a hell of a lot of quit in us. All right. Yeah. And, I, and I throw me in there. I got a whole lot of quit in me. I quit. I quit about 50 times, I think. Hey, you know, the old <laughs> adage, it's not how it's not getting knocked down. It's getting back up. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that you give up and say, no, no, I'm going to finish this book. I'm going to finish it. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't answer that. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, some people say like, why do you write? I'm like, I don't, I don't know why I, I just can't not write. So it's Have you just always been there. Thin. Yeah. I've been a writer for a long time. I, I, I've enjoyed writing since I was, uh, you know, in high school. I read, I read one of your columns, uh, and I thought it was great. I, I mean, it was mesmerizing. Uh, that the story of your life and, and going through, uh, you know, the, the, the FNG. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody hates that stage in life. <laughs> you know, and in case you don't know, it's the, it's the fucking new guy. Uh, fucking new guy. You know, and, and going through that and, and I just, and, and making it through the gauntlet of naval aviation. My brother was a helicopter pilot, not for the Navy, for the Army. Yeah. That's how we roll. That's, that's, that's legit. Uh, yeah. Those are some studly dudes and girls. Well, as he liked to say, you know, everybody else has options if the engines fail. Yep. <laughs> he go, we got no options. <laughs> uh, the ground. Gravity is the only option. Well, and, and getting through that, but, but the other thing is going through those schools, going through those training, because as, as this is my take on it, it's not that they want you to fail, but they don't mind if you do. Because, yeah. you know, because they'd rather you do it now than when anybody yeah. else's ass is on the line other than yours. Yeah. And in fact, they put a lot of pressure on you to try and see if you're going to crack. Right. So there's and there's plenty of people to take your spot. There's a lot of volunteers to fly helicopters or jets or whatever. So they definitely want to induce pressure early to make sure you're not going to crumble under the slightest pressure. Now, you got into the whole, hey, I want to be a jet pilot before Top Gun. Yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> and me both. First top gun. <laughs> you and me both. We are. <laughs> you got the you got a chance to ride in the back of an F fourteen. Yep. As a as a sophomore, well, between sophomore and junior year in college, right it was the year before Top Gun came out. So it wasn't you know, it was pretty close. But uh I it just happened to be the guy that flew me around was the same guy that was the uh, aerial coordinator for the original Top Gun movie. Did you blow uh, chunks? I did the first time I did. But it was all over. You know, we went out and flew for like an hour and a half. And on the way back to base, I was like, oh, I'm feeling it. Yeah, so. I know we sit back and we like to think and we go on roller coasters and they try to tell us they're, you know, Top Gun at Great America. I know you've been there. I know you've yep. ridden it and you probably said, nah, nah. But just feeling the G-force, is there any way you can describe what that's like? I mean, I can describe it. Um I can explain it, but you know, it's one of those things like to fully realize you have to experience it. And you know, the, the physics of it is, you know, we live in one G, a G is a force of gravity. The earth is one G. And then when you start 
pulling back on the stick of an airplane, you're increasing the, you know, the force that your body feels. Uh, and every G is you, you basically double everything uh, at two G's and triple everything at three G's. So, you know, if you're, when you're in a dog fight and you're pulling seven G's, your head weighs seven times what it would normally weigh. And you're trying to, well, you need to, you need to manipulate your head around and, you know, see where the bad guys are and see where you need to go and what your wingman needs and, you know, where you are in space. So there's a lot of, a lot of stress and strain under six, seven, eight G's. Now they teach you how, right? To, to you, 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 what you, you clench your core. I mean, you're trying yep. to keep the blood from basically being like, what, what do they call it when lividity, the, when, when you're dead, you know, the yeah. blood just goes to the back, wherever, which way you're lay, <laughs> you're lay, you're, uh, you're laying there. You have to learn how to keep your blood where yeah. it is. It's actually, it's super undelicate. I mean, you, you're you essentially you're just straining like you're constipated, like you're just trying to keep your blood pressure up in your head. And at the same time, you're squeezing your glutes and your quads and your abdomen, and you got a G suit on, which is helping a little bit because it's sweet. The more G you pull, the more it squeezes your legs and your in your abdomen. Um, and then you lock. There's a you know a part of your throat that you can just like lock tight so that as you pull five six G's, your air doesn't just get squeezed out of your lungs. And then you just get used to it after a while. It becomes second nature. Really, it does. It's like turning your turn signal on when you're changing lanes. You don't even think about it for most people. How do you fight fear? Because I, I don't think it's an, and, and I would think you would need the fear. I think the moment you totally lose fear, you get sloppy, right? I, I talked to a, yeah. a highway patrol guy one time and he goes, it's never new motorcycle riders who die. It's the guys who've been riding for 20 years and they think they can make it between those cars. Sure. Right. And they've lost that fear. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's a couple of answers to that. One is nobody starts flying fighters when they're 45, 50 years old, right? When you kind of, you, you can taste your mortality in the middle age. When I started when I was 21, I didn't have any fear. I mean, not real fear. You know, I had a fear of failure more than anything. Um, but I wasn't afraid of crashing an airplane. Um, and That's not normal. That's not uh, normal. I don't know. I mean, none of us were at the time. And I, I'm not going to say none of us. There was a few people, you know, like in the original Top Gun, there's that opening scene where the guy's cougar, he turns his wings in because he lost the edge. And there were definitely, over the 20 years I flew in the military, there were a few people who just literally lost the edge. They were just like, I can't do this anymore. Not many, um, but it did happen. But the rest of us were just like, man, it's not a, it's not going to be me, right? It, I'm not going to be the one that crashes into a building or, you know, whatever. And it happens, but you just sort of delude yourself through the, the benefit of being young and dumb that it's not going to be you. It is so fun. It is so fun okay. that you just, you know, it just washes everything else away. I mean, there's nothing like the feeling of going like 700 miles an hour, 100 feet off the ground, weaving through a canyon that, you know, to make you feel bulletproof. Uh, I... Uh... I get my thrills by going to the theater. I mean, you know, I mean, I went and saw the Top Gun Maverick. I'm sure you have too. Yeah. Did you love it or did you like it or was it just? It was super fun. It was super fun. You know, the thing that I, I, and, and I'm, I'm glad I get a chance to talk to you. And we're going to get around to the book. Trust me. And we're, I, and you've got a documentary. There's so many things. Again, now you know why I said, I hate this guy. Cause you could just <laughs> sit back and have a list of all of his accomplished accomplishments and he's not done yet. Right. I mean, that's what drives you crazy. Uh, but the, what I was shocked by in Top Gun 
and that I thought that they were able to capture more than they did in the first movie is how much movement there is in the cockpit. Oh, yeah. I, I had no idea that your head was just bouncing left to right. Yeah, it's really violent. It's a violent environment, a violent work environment. There's a lot of physicality to it. Um, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it's just there's bring an airplane to either try to get behind somebody or try to get away from somebody. You have to be violent and unpredictable and high G. So, you know, the plane snaps. And when it snaps, if you're not prepared for it, your head literally bangs off the side of the canopy. Um, you know, and then you pull really hard. And, and when you pull hard, it's not like a roller coaster where it just kind of gently rolls up into a loop. You're like, you pull a stick in your back and up you go. And, you know, it's it is a violent thing. When you're done with a one hour dogfight, you you're sweaty. You feel like you played in a NFL football game. Your body's sore. Your neck's sore. I used to get bruises on, uh, you know, my triceps from kind of banging around in the cockpit. So. That's why there's no fat guy fighter pilots. Oh, there's plenty of fat guy fighter pilots. Oh, shut up. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Sure. I mean, like, think about like an NFL lineman. He's a big fat guy, but he's, you know, he's athletically gifted somewhere deep inside that. You know, they used to be, right? I, I know, yeah. I know one of the guys, one of the guys who plays offensive line on the, on the Niners, and they're yeah. not the big fat guys now. They're just yeah. solid walls of people. Sure. And, and, yeah. and, and they're fast. I mean, yeah, they're you know, fast. And, and that's what you would, that would seem the thing that is that one of the things that goes with the skill set is the ability to make quick decisions and, and fast twitch muscles for last, lack of a better way of saying it. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of hand eye, but not in the sense that you would think, not, not like hitting a tennis ball or a golf ball. Um, it's more like, uh, you know, being able to maneuver the airplane without, looking at your instrumentation, you know, you're, you're looking at the world around you and, and the other planes that are in the sky and you kind of creatively imagine where you need to put your airplane. So there's a lot of sort of artistry involved in that part of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, it's an athletic and intellectual, it's like, it's kind of like playing chess while you're driving a race car. I don't know, you know, because you have to, you have to conceive of all the things that you're doing. You listen to a bunch of radio transmissions, use the radio, selecting the right weapons, all while going, you know, just about the speed of sound and pull a G and, and, and maneuvering the airplane at the same time. So there's a lot of sort of cerebral, intellectual things happening at the same time. Your, your body's under the stress of five, six, seven Gs. Well, and unlike a race car, a race car is staying on one plane. You know, yeah. you're dealing in up, down, left, right, sideways. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I would say so. I've, because of COVID, I got into Formula One racing a lot, you know, and there's they have that great documentary on uh, Netflix. Yeah. And I have like, I think there's a lot of similarities between those those Formula One guys and, and what we did at, at kind of the highest level. Um, there's, you know, there's so little margin for error. Exactly. And there's a lot of tactics, you know, like they're always talking about when they're going to change the tires. And, you know, there's a lot of, again, cerebral aspects to what they're doing, not just turning the steering wheel and hitting the gas and brakes, if that makes sense. You know, like I said, when we go back to the fear thing, I mean, in my job, you know, the best thing about my job, if I screw up, nobody dies. Nobody yeah. dies at all. Right. F1 racing. It just takes one guy. And that's just not only the guy in the cockpit. That's the thing I'm talking about. Like when you're doing fine, you have to depend on everybody yep. to do their job for you to come home. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I would tell you, man, that's one of the things I missed the most about it was the sort of team aspect of it. You know, and some of these things didn't hit me until I quit doing it, right? So actually, when I started writing the book, I, I read this line in the book, like, you know, there's a new class of students that are coming in to fly the airplane. And they think they're, you know, they think they're the coolest thing ever. And somebody's trying to give them a little bit of perspective. And he's like, all right, when you go out to this fleet, when you're in the ship, you're 150 naval aviators, right? 72, 78 airplanes, depending on the the, the uh, outfitting of the aircraft carrier. You've got an aircraft carrier with 5,500 people and then about seven or eight other ships, each with many hundreds of people. We're talking $15 billion of taxpayer money for 150 men and women to go do their job. So you better earn it and respect that. And and it kind of hit me like, wow, that when you're talking about, you know, you hear this a lot, but the tip of the spear, it is a no shitter. There's a whole support structure of, you know, support ships and missile workers and ordnance men and, and fuelers and maintainers and all this incredible structure that is there to put 150 men and women off the off the tip of the the spear of the, the aircraft carrier. In so, that way, so cool. did you play sports? Is that is that something that because that's when I talk to retired athletes, they don't miss the yeah. game. They miss the locker room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. I played sports. And, you know, that's the other thing. Like, uh, you know, some some famous athlete said, you know, an athlete dies twice, right? You know, you die when you stop playing your sport and you die when you die, obviously. And uh, that's the same for a fighter pilot. You, you, you know, if you're lucky, you die twice. You know, if you don't die flying an airplane, you, you, you have to hang up your boots and that sucks because you feel like you're, you're giving up something that you've dedicated your entire life to. And then you obviously some point later on, you pass away. You know, it's one of the things I read that you wrote talking about because you've lost over 20 friends and comrades doing yeah. this job. And you go to these memorial services and you see the flyovers. And then the yep. weird thing is, is now let's go get back into the jet and do what just killed my friend. Yeah. That's, that's mind boggling to your average person, right? I mean, yeah, that's just, that's something there's dedication to duty, but there's also nothing short of intestinal fortitude that that requires. Yeah. I mean, I, I think again, um, you know, young people do it right. So young, young people can sort of throw those things into a box and forget them about them for a while. Um, you know, and, and frequently, you know, when you're deployed on a, on a carrier, um, like I said, the national assets involved in, in pushing that ship through the water, uh, are, are massive and you've got a mission to do and you're there for a purpose and every once in a while, a plane will crash and people will die. And, you know, if it's not later on that day, it's the next day, planes are flying again. You got to, you know, nobody takes a break because somebody has an accident or something bad happens. And um, it is weird, but you get good at literally like mentally you take that thing and you put it in a box and you put it back here and you store it for later. Why the Navy? Because, because, yeah, why? I don't know. I can't answer that. I've always been in love with like the ocean and ships and, and flying. So, you know, it seemed like a, a natural for me. I never was interested in the Air Force. I have no idea why. There's no real military in my family. My dad was uh, in the army between uh, Korea and Vietnam uh, for a couple of years, but you know, he just did his two year stint and, and got out. So 
there's no aviation in my family. Um, I'm an outlier in that sense. <laughs> they got a great theme song, man. Anchors away. That sounds great. Better than everything, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, it beats the hell out of when the caissons go rolling along. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and, you know, being on a ship, I mean, because you made the point, okay, it's a huge ship, but it's not yeah. roomy when you throw no. 5,000 people on it. Yeah. It feels tiny when you're inside an aircraft carrier, unless you're on the hangar deck and, um, let me see if I can explain this. So an aircraft carrier, like I said, 5,500 people, it's 1,100 feet long, about four and a half acres of flat top surface area up, up top. And then you go inside the ship and there's, I think, 17 or 18 uh, what we call levels and, and they're floors, essentially. Um, and they're all, it's like a little rat worn. I mean, you, you're walking down the hallway and, you know, there's a bunch of doors and tiny little rooms where people either work or sleep uh, until you get to the third level down. Um, that's where the hangar deck is. And that's a big, big open space, but that's it on the rest of the ship. It's, it's, you feel like you're in a college dorm, basically, except everything's painted gray and it's metal. So how's the food? Ah, it's not great. <laughs> it's not great. So, I, I mean, one of the things we do you know, every, every three weeks to a month, uh, when you pull into port, when you're lucky, right? Like if it's not a wartime where you're just stuck out at sea the whole time, when you pull into port, the priorities are food and drink. And by drink, I mean, you know, yeah. alcohol. <laughs> so. Hey, it's, my, uh, my, my little sister was in the army forever and, uh, she was talking about one of the things if they had, if they got a good cook in her division, right? Yeah. He or she lasted for like a month because as soon as the higher ups down, there's somebody who could cook, then pluck them. They're done. Yeah. They're gone. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was fine. Whatever. You know, you'll eat anything when you're 25. Yeah, uh, and and you can eat a lot of it, and then not gain yeah. weight, and then we don't play that game anymore. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to come back and talk about Lions of the Sky. I want to get into this book with Paco Kirichi. Uh, listen, Perfect. you know, for a was... kid from South Alabama, give me a damn break. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I'm giving you two thumbs up, man. We're coming back right after this. So I want to tell you about our new sponsor, The Gym Guys. I have been working out with them for over a year now. It all started with a pandemic and there was no place to go. The gyms were closed, all that kind of stuff. I found The Gym Guys because they come to you. The commute is theirs. Isn't that one of the worst parts working out is you have to factor in the commute time? Not with The Gym Guys. And it's more motivating. It's one thing to say, I'm going to work out today. It's another thing if you know, like, I have Luciana coming over today at 11.15. I got to be ready for it. And and then they change the workouts up for you. They give you an app so when you're working out on your own, you know how to do it right and what you're trying to do. And they also give you access to a nutritionist. It's all there for you. You can take it as, you know, if you're just starting your journey or maybe you want to take your journey to the next level. Maybe we've got a contest on how you can win 100 free sessions with your friends and coworkers. It's at TheBiggestMover.com. TheBiggestMover.com. But you'll find the gym guys on the web. G-Y-M-G-U-Y-Z. So, the book, Lions of the Sky. Like I said, I was impressed by it. I am impressed by it. I've not finished it yet. I'm halfway through, so don't tell me what happens. Oh, man, it just gets better from here. Th that's You're all gonna I'm start saying. In about 30 pages. Really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, damn you, Dusty. Damn you, Dusty! 
Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I just love the layers. I love the layers of the characters. I, I mean, you could, you see this as a movie. When I'm reading it, I'm seeing it as a movie. Yeah. You know, and there's some books I read, I mean, that I, that I really enjoy, but I never see it as a movie. I enjoy the book experience. I'm enjoying the book experience, but man, I'm seeing, you're so good at describing things. You're so good yeah. at adding color and flavor to Thank every you, yeah. scene that, that, that you create. I mean, that's a, that's a skill set. Well, it was, I mean, thank you. Uh, but it's also super deliberate. Like, you know, my, the way I write and the way I tell stories is that I want the reader or the viewer, like with the documentary, I want them to feel like they're involved in the story, right? Like they are in the cockpit or they're able to get the sensation of flying, of dogfighting, of landing on an aircraft carrier. Um, and that's really important to me. Um, and that's, that was the target for, you know, being able to tell the story. So that, you know, you're along for the ride. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like work. You're just getting pulled along. Are you, do you identify most with Slammer? Is, is that Paco in a, in a, in a, in a different form? I, you know, it's funny. I, almost everybody in the book, uh, their, their call signs are real people. Um, and, uh, Slammer was my, he was my boss when I was a, a younger guy and he was just the best. I mean, I, I totally respected him. To me, he was like the penultimate fighter pilot just the coolest dude you know awesome really kind to people great leader and just happened to be a kick-ass dogfighter and, and fighter pilot so that is kind of i mean there's a little bit of me in all the characters really because i'm trying to tell my story and, and i use all these different voices to do it um i would not say that i mean slam slammer's just freaking way too cool to be <laughs> anybody that knows me would tell you that <laughs> i can get my wife in here and she'll take it but um well you know he, he's a cool guy i wish i was slammer how about that if i could in, genetically engineer myself to be somebody that it would be that well that's what i asked you was, is slammer the idealized version of you and the idealized is from your perspective sure i guess you could say that but i certainly don't think that yeah if I could, uh, if I could fix everything that that ails me, I would be slammer in lines of the sky. Well, I uh, you ever read Kinky Friedman? No, Kinky Friedman uh, has a band in Texas called the Texas Jew Boys, uh -huh. and uh, and he writes murder mysteries, or he did. I'm not even sure if he's still alive, but he was the hero of his own books. You right. know? good for and, him. <laughs> and, and he would, and but his was the exact opposite. He goes. I'm better than that guy. Right. He's better than his written <laughs> yeah, hero. I'm better than the guy you see on the page. I'm much, I'm much better than that guy. He's a complete ass hat and I'm, I'm not him. Uh, well, I, because I had, I had read, I mean, uh, there's Keely Quick Silver. That yep. was, that was a cool name. Quick Silver. Yeah. But now you based her on a very important person to you. Yes. And, yeah. and her name was Kara Holtgreen. Am I getting that right? That's correct. Yep. Tell me about her. Well, she was the first female uh, fighter pilot in the Navy to fly F-14s. So she, you know, until 1993, basically, no women were allowed to fly in combat units. Um, they were allowed to fly, you know, training and support missions. So they, there were a bunch of, not a bunch, but a few naval aviators that were women. Um, and just sort of on faith alone, Carol Green said, I'm going to go be a fighter pilot. Uh, I'm going to go join the Navy and get my wings and someday I'm going to be a fighter pilot. She kind of had the, the premonition that she was going to be able to change the tide or be there when it did change. 
Um, and she was kind of a badass. I, I met her originally in uh, flight school in Kingsville, Texas. Um, and we just happened to have the same car, like two little uh, Alfa Romeo, uh, you know, convertible cars. And, and she just had this cool presence and confidence and swagger about her, which I, I thought was awesome. Uh, and then when uh, the law changed and women were allowed to go uh, fight in combat or fly in combat units, um, she was one of the first two women. And we were in the same squadron, uh, unfortunately, very briefly, because I got there basically the week that Kara crashed and, and died and perished. Um, so uh, I always found her to be in uh, in our squadron. Loved Kara Hulkring. She was she was uh, a part of like a, a truly a part of the squadron. Um, we call a you know like a locker room in sports in in a fighter community. You call it the ready room where you know the the people gather and give each other shit and brief and and do whatever work they need to do. But it's the collection of people is called you know the ready room. And in, in our ready room, she was part of the boys to use a, a horrible metaphor, but part of the group. Um, and uh, after she passed away, uh, her death was used as an example of why women should not fly in combat. And she was really vilified. And it was uh, it was uh, hurtful, obviously, to her family, uh, to her legacy, which and it was inaccurate. Um, and we all found it to be, um, you know, kind of a, a spiteful and, and really nasty thing to do to somebody who had just passed away uh, that had the same passion for flying that we all did and had the same dedication to our country that we all did. So, um, that never left me. And, and, and I, I based my character in the book on the, the question, what, what might Kara's career have looked like had she lived, you know, she was kind of a cool, badass woman who was fighting against this stuff and yet she was quite skilled. So that Keely is, is the embodiment of Kara's soul. You, uh, uh, I I read the one thing you said that I guess her commanding officer tried to do the flight flight simulation of what happened to her accident a hundred times yep. and failed ninety seven out of a hundred times. Yeah, even knowing it was obviously knowing it was coming. So yeah, I mean, what happened to her was not her fault. Um, she made some mistakes, but you know, pilots I've, I've made bigger mistakes than Carol Hulgrain, and I, I was lucky enough to live. Uh, unfortunately for her, the the chain of Things that happened uh, led to her her death, and it shouldn't have, but it did. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't because she was a woman. She just, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, yeah, I, it was, it had nothing to do with her gender, essentially. Well, I enjoyed the heck out of Quicksilver so she's far. Great. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, because she is, she's, she's got a very, she's got a very defiant, and I don't use that word as a pejorative. Uh, yeah. A very defiant uh, position of, you know, like you said, you may kick me out, but I won't quit. Right? Exactly. And yeah. and and it and it takes that as we were talking earlier. You know, it's it's they they, they did. It's not that they want you to fail, but they don't mind if you do. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and so meeting her and watching and and you know watching the 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 progression of of uh, of Slammer and having him come to deals with all these other things and then you know who knew pig was a brainiac who the hell <laughs> knew pig was a brainiac <laughs> i did <laughs> well yeah from the is, did you start there did you create the characters first i'm always amazed because i i've talked to a number of authors on this podcast right and yeah. and everybody has a different way of working was the story first were the characters first what was the mm -hmm. outline 
It was a long outline. It was probably a 70 page outline. Uh, wow. The average is usually like 30 to 30, 35 usually is what I hear. It's like, you know, you're just kind of giving yourself a place to go. So that is a long outline. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm writing the sequel right now and it's probably only about 30 page outline, but, um, the story came first and it was the story of, you know, it's, it, it I'm not going to ruin it for you because you, you've got to, you've got to finish the, the best part of the book. But, um, you know, it's a story of not only redemption, but of sort of, of real, of growth. Uh, and it's, there's two different characters that go through those things, those journeys. Um, so I knew that was kind of the story I wanted to tell. And then you build the characters around it. And then as you're writing, you, you flesh out the characters and you go back and, and give them different attributes, uh, you know, as you, as you edit up. Um, so they, they start off as maybe half formed versions of who they will eventually be. And then you go back and really fill them in and give them depth and shading and stuff like that. How did you, how did you approach the geopolitical situations, you know, yeah. because you have to create these out of thin air. And, and I mean, even for you as a former military person, I'm sure the Navy is looking at you going, Hey, what the hell are we talking about here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was, you know, the South China sea, which is where this, uh, where the, the real big conflict takes place at the end of the book. Um, as you, anybody who picks up the paper these days knows that that's a real thing. And I, I kind of saw, you know, anybody was, a little bit of a military sensibility could see it coming for the last 15 years. You know, the China, Chinese military has been doubling their, their spending for a good two generations now. Um, and certainly in the last 10 years, it has exploded and there, there's no ambiguity as to what their goal is. They are, uh, they want to take over Southeast Asia, if not all of Asia. And it's, you know, that's, that's not a shock. So um, it's a flashpoint, and it's going to continue to be a flashpoint for the next at least generation. Hopefully, it will not lead to a war, um, but it's it's going to be a point of contention for sure. It is. It is kind of scary just uh, just because you have the military background, and 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 I'll ask you this as completely naive as I possibly can be. Did the Ukraine situation? I was surprised to find out how, and I again. What's the term I want to use? Not advanced? You know, yeah. the Russian military wasn't as advanced as I thought it was. I mean, yeah. is that fair or, or am I just being naive? No, I mean, I would say so. I totally got everything wrong about the whole Ukraine invasion. I didn't think Putin would invade because there was no real advantage to him for, to invade. Like, clearly the world was going to hip against him. Yeah. Um, you know, he already had Crimea. Maybe he needed a, needed a land bridge to Crimea, but not to get too stuck in the weeds on that. Um, and then once, you know, he did invade, I thought it'd be over in about a week. You know, kind of like, you know, if, if people can remember back in 91, uh, you know, we had an invasion in, in Iraq and it took essentially 43 days, I think, to beat what was at the time the fourth largest military in the world. So, you know, using that as a sort of historical reference, I thought they would uh, storm through Ukraine pretty quickly. but. Their military has been exposed as kind of a paper tiger. Like they're, they're really not well trained. They're not motivated. Their tactics are horrible. Their equipment is, you know, ancient for the most part. And even their brand new stuff is pretty mediocre. So, uh, I think this is going to be a really, and, and it's going to affect a lot of other things too, because the Chinese military uses essentially stolen, uh, technology. technology. Yeah. And so, you know, 
Taiwan is probably thinking, okay, well, maybe we do have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that this was, stuff is not that great. That's what I was going to tie in with you on that because I think it's interesting. Yeah. That is, could we be facing the same kind of situation that, you know, we've, we've built the Chinese up like we did the Russians and, and this is to not to diminish the threat. All right. I'm, I'm not diminishing the threat, yeah. but sitting back and going, you know, they're not known for their innovation. Right. No. I mean, they're not. It's it's all about stealth and or, or stealing, not even stealth, uh, yeah. stealing, misappropriating. You know, that's how, you know, as well as I do here in America. What do they do? They try to get spies in constantly. That, uh, that's what yeah, we absolutely. that's what we fight. You yeah. think that's a possibility that, again, maybe they're well, taking their bets. So, uh, I mean, a lot of what's what's wrong with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is endemic to the Russian uh, military, the, their, their motivation, their training. The Chinese have the same. Well, for example, the Ukrainians are basically beating the Russians with Russian equipment, right? Old Russian equipment. And obviously we've started sending them a bunch of uh, missiles, t- anti-tank missiles and artillery and stuff, but really they're, they're doing the bulk of their work with Russian equipment. Um, the Chinese are, much more diligent in the military, much more motivated. They're, I, I would think they'd be a much h- more highly trained uh, military force. Um, so they're not going to have a lot of the same um, pitfalls that the Russians did. Uh, th- their tactics going to be more sound. Um, and I, I would I would imagine that they would not uh, attack Taiwan if they weren't 100% sure that they could win. Um, so... I think that's a huge difference. Uh, the other, but you know, the counter to that is Taiwan is not going to be defending themselves with old Russian equipment. They have ultra modern, you know, Western military <laughs> defensive and offensive capabilities. So I don't know. It, you know, it's, it's but they're only 90 miles apart. So it's, it's, it's tight, man. I, yeah. I would not. It it is fascinating, and you know, and that's the other thing is that somebody, somebody with military experience told me was they were like, you know, thing where the, the stuff we're sending to the Ukraine, you know, the equipment we're that's not our new stuff. We're yeah. not even coming close to our new stuff. We're 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 a long ways away from sending the new stuff. Let me let me touch on a maybe a touchy subject for you. What do you think about drone technology, and what is it, and how does that impact? Our fighter pilots. Well, I mean, it's certainly um, important. It's important to, you know, the nature of warfare moving forward. Um, How it affects fighter pilots is yet to be seen because there's obviously a lot of advantages you can get out of an unmanned combat plane, but there's also uh, a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, if you could somehow either hack into the software or, you know, jam a GPS, whatever you're, when you're taking a human being out of the, the command loop of an, an aircraft, you're taking a risk against, you know, a superpower, right? I mean, it's not going to matter if you're fighting a, you know, a, a terrorist warfare somewhere in the Middle East, because they don't have this sort of global technology that we're talking about. But if you, if you're going to war with China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, and they are able to hack into whatever it is you're trying to send over there, and there's a variety of different means to do that, um, then, then you've got nothing, right? So 
I don't think that the human fighter pilot will ever be completely out of the loop. Um, I, the way I envision it and, and other people, and it's not my idea, but, you know, people I know that are in that business now, former fighter pilots that are working in this industry say that the way it's probably going to look like is you have a fighter plane and he's got two or three or four drones attached to him and he can send them downfield, downrange. Uh, and if things, you know, he can manipulate them kind of like a quarterback would. Um, Wow. Not necessarily directly, you know, he's not flying yeah. them, but yeah. he's giving them direction and commands and targeting assignments and stuff like that. So you still got a human in the loop up in a plane that's able to, you know, operate offensively, but you're not, you're not putting the same number of pilots, uh, in, in the theater. Wow. That's just fascinating. That, that's... It is kind of crazy. And it's, I mean, it's in a way it's sad to me because, you know, it's what I did for a living and we're going to get replaced by robots to a certain degree, but um, you know, you can't stop progress. <laughs> well, I, I think, but you bring up very good po points. Uh, anybody who listens to me, they know I have this diatribe that I go, you know, driverless cars, driverless cars that everybody yeah. thinks driverless cars are going to take over tomorrow. Well, you just yeah. saw the head of Tesla's autumn, you know, autopilot division just resigned because, Hey, guess what? There's glitches in the system. I've never had a computer in my entire life that did not go bonkers for some sure. reason, including myself. Usually when it was an important moment too, yeah. right? Like you're about to do something really important and everything goes to hell, right? including my cell phone, right? So it's, but you know what? I'm not doing 75 on 880. Yep. You know, when that happens. And, right. and and I think the same thing. I think the human element is always going to be more required than people thinking the future will 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 view it as such. Sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And and the other thing is for every offense there's a defense, right? I mean mm -hmm. somebody invented armor and the other guy invented a bullet. And that just will never stop. So somebody's gonna we have drones now and somebody's working very hard to figure out how to mess up the drones. You know, that's their job. So. Yeah, the hacking stuff. So that's 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 interesting to me as you plot out the sequel to your book. Yeah. I mean, and what you do, you have to have an eye toward technology. You don't get to it's not like you're writing in nineteen seventy six. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> then you get to stay stuck in that time. You get to yep. go, okay, I only have to deal with this technology and I can, I can infer technology that's coming because I'm seeing it. Well, no. So you have to keep up on today and everything yeah. that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I have a subscription to, you know, a bunch of different high tech airplane magazines so I can keep up with stuff. I'm like, holy crap. I didn't know they could do that, but <laughs> I'm writing notes. I'm doing research. Is there Such anything you wish you could have flown, uh, flown? Oh God, yeah! I would have loved to have flown the F sixteen as a dogfighter. So the F sixteen is the most uh, proliferated uh, plane in the Air Force, and uh, you know there's a bunch of them around the world. Uh, mostly, it's used for air to ground stuff, but as a dogfighter, like the Navy uses them for uh, adversary work. And if you take all the tanks and rails off it, it is the baddest ass dogfighter on the planet. Um, and then the F twenty two, the Raptor, that's pretty dang cool. I would have loved to have flown that. So. There's no speed you wouldn't fly, huh? No, no, I don't. I love going fast, but speed isn't everything. You know, it's not like I don't want to just be on a, a rocket ship going. SR-71. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the SR-71 has no appeal to me. I, I, I don't want to just go up high and fast in a spacesuit. I like, you know, the ability, like the, the Raptor, the uh, F-22, man, that thing can turn a loop in hundreds of feet versus 
thousands for a real fighter plane or a regular fighter plane. Um, how, uh, how much G-force is, is on a hundreds of feet loop? Well, it's not, so they have vector thrust, so they can like, it's like doing a gymnastics roll, basically, like a backwards flip, and they've got these massive engines, so they can, they can do them pretty slow, uh, which is incredible. So they could, you know, hit the merge and just do this loop and flop in right behind the guy. Um, it's pretty incredible. You so. know, it's the sound. I, uh, cause I know you're in Northern California and I was playing golf yeah. over at, uh, Sunnyvale Muni one time and uh-huh. the Harrier jets came in. Yeah. My God, you've never heard a louder thing in your entire life. <laughs> it, was, it was just beyond <laughs> scary. It was a scary where everybody in the golf course just stopped. Nobody right. moved because it was just the the sounds. And I can only imagine what that's like on a carrier. Uh, I was going to tell you. So one of my favorite memories of being on a carrier is, uh, you know, everything on a carrier operates on a cycle. So you launch 15 to 20 planes. And then as soon as they're off the deck, then they ready the deck for recovery. And the guys that were flying for the last hour and a half or so are going to come back and land. And I was a landing signals officer. So I was one of the guys that would go up and, you know, talk to the planes as they're coming in uh, in the last, you know, 15 to 20 seconds, keep them safe and stuff like that. So we got to be ready to go as the last of the few planes are launching. We're standing on the stairs just below the flight deck. And there was a nighttime launch and there was an F-14 that was maybe 30 feet away from me. And there's a, a jet blast deflector that comes up as they go to full power. And it's nighttime, so the deck is really dark, and these afterburners come on, and these two, like, enormous rocket motor flames are coming out, hitting the JBD, the the blast deflector, and going up. And the whole ship is rumbling, and there's a little bit of water on the steps that I was standing in front, and the water, just from the noise, is bouncing up and down. And I was like, this is... This is just the freaking coolest place on earth right now. You know, and then the plane takes off. Like you can feel it in your chest. You know, like when you go to a concert and you can feel the bass rumbling in your chest. And it was just phenomenal. Well, it's like the, uh, the woman in the, uh, the, 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 uh, Real, the sizzle reel that you sent me for your oh, documentary. Yeah. And she was talking about how one of the pilots flew over low and she goes, it gives you all the tingles and all yeah. the places you want them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. She's famous. <laughs> and I'm like, there you go. Were you, were you married when you were a fighter pilot? I mean, when you were doing that, were, were you raising a family? Yeah. Not, uh, no, I didn't have kids till I got out of the active duty. Okay. Because I was yeah. say, how do you how do you navigate those waters? Yeah, well, for me, that was one of the reasons why I got out was to start a family. Because um, I was going to have to go back out to sea, and uh, it, it just didn't work for me. I've got plenty of friends that stayed in and have kids, and you know, and marriages and all that stuff. But it, it just, as a personal choice, it wasn't going to work out. But now you went into you were training where you you would train these guys, and and you were the bandits. Yeah, right. I, I, I did that in the reserves for ten years. So I would only go do that maybe seven days a month, seven to days, seven to ten days a month. But yeah, that was that was super fun. It was just great being the adversary, being the bad guy. You know, the, for a Top Gun reference, we were basically Viper. So, we what, were, and you were and you were flying. Uh, let's be clear, outdated aircraft. Yeah, yeah. And so you had to be even that much better. Well, you know, we had the advantage of. Knowing what we were doing, you know, in terms of the scenarios that we set up, and we're this is all we did. The only thing we did was fly adversary work, where a real Navy fighter pilot has about 10 different skills he's got to be great at. 
Uh, and only one of the 10 is dogfighting, right? So he's got to land on the ship and he's got to fly low levels and he's got to draw bombs and, you know, he's got other things that he's got to be really proficient at. And only one of them is dogfighting or, or, and the other one is air-to-air combat. And all we did in the reserves is dogfighting and air-to-air combat. We, like, you know, we always joked that we were like uh, Shaolin monks out in the middle of the desert just doing our, <laughs> sharpening our skills like... <laughs> A bunch of weirdos. When you can but grab the stones from my hand, it is time for you to go. Yeah. <laughs> but we, you know, that's all we did. So we were pretty damn good at it. Um, and the nice thing about flying a jet that was uh, obviously inferior was that we, you know, once the student got their feet under them and, and kind of knew what they were going to do and got the initial jitters out, they're usually one. But if they did lose, it was an easily identifiable mistake. Like we could go to the whiteboard after in the debrief. And the debrief is always the most important part of all this training. It's not what happens in the air. It's how you how you absorb the lessons on the ground. And we'd be able to go to in the debrief and write everything up on the whiteboard and say, right here is where you made a mistake. And, and we always kind of use a little bit of a... Uh, lingo to depersonalize it. We would say the bandit was able to capitalize on the fighter's mistake. And this is the spot right here. And people would learn from that and they would become better. Well, and that's what I like uh, of the book when when Quicksilver and everybody's going through the training and stuff, you know, yeah. and they are trying to explain it to them. You know, I know you're you think I'm hating on you. I'm trying to save your yours and everybody else's lives. Exactly. You know, yeah. it, that's that's what we're doing here. Not we're not yeah. here trying to run you through the reamer, even though that's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, and it's tough too, because everybody's got a pretty big ego when you get to that level, right? Everybody's, you know, it's like pro athletes. You, know, you tell pro athlete he made a mistake and caused an interception, you know, he's going to, he or she is going to get their hackles up a little bit, you know, it becomes personal. So it, it's really important to A, be able to take, take the shit, take it, mm-hmm. just absorb, take your medicine and get better. And also, to, you know, the steps you take to make that easier is you really depersonalize it. You don't ever use names like, hey, you, Billy Bob, you fucked up. I'm turning the left turn. You say the fighter made a, a mistake. The bandit was able to capitalize that kind of stuff. You know, you're a big ass guy to be a pilot. <laughs> you're six foot three end. inches, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I had this dream of when I was growing up, because I, 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 we're, we're about the same age. I'm probably older than you, but it's still, you, I had that dream of being an astronaut, right? We watched them go up in space. And then I found yeah. out how tall you had to be. You couldn't be over yeah. five, nine, right? Yeah. And it's just like so small. And, and then you saw the same thing is that you didn't see a lot of real, I mean, let's see what thing Tom Cruise got it right. About that size. About that size. Yeah, roughly. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. I'm about, so I'm six three. I think the only, there's only a couple guys I ever knew who are taller than me, maybe three, uh, but not much, maybe an inch or two at the most. So. I don't know anybody that was six six. I knew a couple six fivers, but that's about it. Do you ever have a desire to go into space? I mean, you know, fighter pilot, you got to ask that question. Not really. No, I feel like you're just along for the ride, man. You know, I mean, it'd be fun to be a little, yeah, I'm a, I, I like to fly things. So, you know, to manipulate the controls. Uh, I do have one of my, uh, top cat classmates, uh, was this woman, Susan Stills, and she did two shuttle missions. Um, she was pretty cool. So she was an actual pilot of the space shuttle. And when they landed the space shuttle, they were like essentially flying a glider from space, no power. They were just gliding that thing in and they couldn't mess it up. 
you got one chance. So it was pretty real. That's pretty bad. That was right cool. there. That's pretty yeah, that's badass. Pretty bad. yeah, no, um, I give him props. I give him props for that. Yeah, I, I landed a space shuttle day. What did you do, Paco? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about, and again, I, I only got a few more minutes because I know you're busy, uh, but I, can you explain to me the thought process of when you're trying to land on an aircraft carrier at night? Uh, nice. So I mean, I it's bad enough that, just saying on an aircraft carrier, but when you guys well, take it up to the next level and say, "No, no, do it in the dark." <laughs> yeah. So I will say, but I think it's important to know that landing for a naval aviator to land in a plane on an aircraft carrier during the day is just about the most fun thing you can do. It's awesome. Really? It's super, super fun. We love doing it. We'll come in to the land on the ship and. 600 knots and pull 5Gs to go downwind, drop our gear in flaps, to turn another 90 degree or 180 degrees, come in and land. And you feel like king of the world, man. If, you know, if everything comes out right, your adrenaline is going through the roof and, and you do it over and over again. You take that same airplane, same ship, and do it with the lights out, essentially, and it flips over to being just about the most terrifying thing we ever did. Um, Probably the best way to explain it is to say that I had probably 150, maybe around 200 night carry landings, and not a one did I not have my legs shaking after I landed. Um, and you steer an airplane with your feet. Uh, you know, the rudder pedals are, are the what you use to turn the nose gear. And you got to maneuver. You know, there's these 19, 20-year-olds on the flight deck with yellow wands, glowy sticks that are telling you where to go to park. And they'll take you to the very edge of a ship because they got to make you know you got to make space. So you you're going to park. It's like parallel parking, except you're 60 feet over the water and you can't see the edge, um, and your legs are shaking. So you know you, you, it's really hard to control the airplane. And it was a mixture of sheer terror and adrenaline just coursing through your body. Um, you know, on the darkest of nights, there's no horizon. The ship is pitch black except the little rectangle that you land on and the and the Meatball, which is the uh, optical landing system that gives you glide slope information. Um, and, you know, you're going 150 miles an hour and the ship's moving 20-ish knots and there's wind pushing you off center line. And, you know, sometimes the ship's going up and down. It's a 100,000 ton ship, but it's, it still rocks in the ocean. And uh, it's freaking terrifying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I uh I parallel parked this morning over at San Jose State. I uh <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> scary. That could be scary. I got my cameras. I had them already. I was all in on that. Okay, but before I let you go, you have to explain to me what is this what is this game Klondike? Uh Klondike or or crud? No, you this, said Klondike. In your article, you said we played uh, okay. this we played this game called Klondike that could get pots of up to a few thousand dollars. Yeah. It's it's a it's a <laughs> it's an awesome game. Uh you don't play it when you're sober because it's a stupid game. Um we used to play it in the officers' club. I don't even think they they probably don't even play it anymore, but you know, you got 10, 15, 20 people around a circle and you got three dice in a cup. And, you know, if you're, if you're the bank, you set out a, a X number of dollars, say a hundred bucks out there. And the guy to your left can take any portion or no portion, pass it on. And it keeps going until uh, the hundred bucks is covered. And then you, you roll the dice and you set a number and uh, whatever that number is, the guys 
it's an individual bet against the other guys to see who can either beat or 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 you know lose to you. Uh, a one two three is an automatic loser, and a, a four five six is a Klondike, and that's an automatic winner. And all of a sudden, that now you got a certain amount of money in the pot. You, if you roll a four five six, now you got two hundred bucks, and you can just you can either pull it or let it ride. You can't take half of it out. So you know, drunk young guys are like, "Yeah, man, let it ride. We'll just keep going." And I mean, I saw pots, you know, three thousand, four thousand dollars, and it's all guys we knew. So people would write some amount of money on a bar napkin with their name on it, and you know, you'd have to get it from them later. But That's awesome. It was. It was super fun. It was super fun. Now you're still doing the dog fighting. You're do- out over Monterey Bay. Is that are, is that the group you're doing it with, or what do you guys yeah, take I mean, it out? We we do fly over Monterey Bay quite a bit. Uh, but I it's did based that. Out of- what that? I did it. You did it. I did it. It was awesome. I always I did it back in the nineties, right? Okay. And I did it, and I loved it. I've always used this thing. This uh, the pilot who was we were doing the training, right? And he looks at yeah. me and he goes. There's nothing you can do to this plane that I can't get us out of. Yeah. And I have used that in my work experience. I remember when, when my, my partner came on to, uh, on the air with me and she was kind of like a little nervous. And I looked at her and I said, there's nothing you could do to this show that I can't save us from. I remember that, but it was crazy. It was, you're still doing it. That's so much fun. Yep. Yeah. I love it. It's fun. It's, you know, it's like, going out and racing cars on a racetrack or whatever. It's just a super adrenaline adventure. I got a bunch of buddies here in the Bay Area. We all got the same airplanes and we go out and dogfight. Yeah, they gave us, they videotaped it for us. And, you know, the guy was yeah. just like, follow your guy. Just get behind yeah. him and follow your guy and start shooting. And then we'll all yeah. get back and we'll watch the video because you won't know what happened until right. you followed your guy. And that's when you started yeah. seeing the, the land and the air. And it's just, you're doing stuff <laughs> that's, if he would have just said, sit back and let me do this. No help. No, 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 you won't. <laughs> but I did it. It was amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's fun to do. By the plane I have now only has one seat. So it'd be tough to take a passenger, but it is fun experience. It is it is awesome to talk to you. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. I Paco Chirici. I'm, I'm going to do it all in it. Uh, <laughs> the book is called Lions of the Sky. I can't wait for the sequel to come out. How long do you think it'll take? Well, I'm just finishing up the script for a video game. So I was about 100 and some pages into the sequel, and I got hired to write a script for a video game, which is funny because I don't play video games, but uh, it's kind of like writing a book or a movie or whatever. You know, it's there's a whole story and characters and dialogue and stuff like that. And uh, I'm just finishing that up right now. And uh, I'll finish up the, the sequel here shortly, hopefully by the end of the year or so. Again, like we started this conversation, one of those guys I hate because you're still <laughs> you're still a commercial pilot, right? Yep. And so now he's adding video game writer. <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot like writing a, a book or a, or a movie. I would Fago, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's super fun. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.